And as you're being seated, if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. As we dive into this, our first word, our first commandment in our series of the Ten Commandments. I'll be reading verses 1 through 3 today. Something of a bit of a reminder of what we had taken a look at from last week. That God has delivered his people. The good news that the people have been set free from slavery. And now he is going to detail what a free life really looks like. So let's look at it together. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's once more go to our God and ask his blessing on our message this morning. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this text that is in front of us. I ask that you would help us to see the freedom that it gives to us. And I pray that we would be ready and willing to submit to you, our God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Every morning when you get up, you ask yourself a question. Now, it might not be a conscious question that you ask, like for me, of what day is it, or where am I, who am I, what year is it? I tend to sleep very deeply. But the question that we are all forced to answer every day is, who am I going to worship today? Now, you might say, that's a rather easy question, Mark. We're all here in church. We're all Christians. We've had some sort of experience. Perhaps you've walked an aisle, signed a card, or talked with a pastor, prayed a prayer. A number of these things you say, yes, I am submitted to Jesus. I've made a decision to do that. So it seems like that question has already been answered for me, hasn't it? This is not an easy of a question as we think. I, can tend to, I tend to wonder why it is that, we, that the Lord has put this commandment where it is. Surely you would think, because this is being given to the people of Israel and to those that would follow after God, you would think those that, have, that, have, that are first hearing these words wouldn't need to be told this. Here they've been delivered out of the house of slavery. They've been delivered from Egypt. They've watched the most powerful nation in the world brought to its knees. Every single one of their gods that this great country worshipped have all been cut down. By a word, the great Nile that had supplied their agriculture with a word was turned to blood, became a place where that was undrinkable water. The sun that they worshipped was blackened for three days where no light was found. And even Pharaoh himself was unable to avoid the judgment of God. And then as if all that wasn't enough, they had been, it led them out of this place with great fanfare. He had split the Red Sea. They could walk out on dry land. The pursuing army of Pharaoh was drowned. They've been following around this pillar of fire and this great tornado cloud and been able to hear him speak. A mountain is shaking. Surely you would think, okay, I think I've made my choice. Who is it that I'm going to serve? 
But it turns out that our hearts are really easy to sway. It turns out that our loyalties are really easy to bend. Because this same people, not but a few chapters later, are going to be found dancing around a golden calf, worshiping something they made with their own hands. And we tend to think, well, how stupid of those people. Look at what you've seen at this point. How on earth could you possibly go with something like carved gold? But if we think that we are beyond that, if we think we are beyond idolatry, well, then we need to hear what this commandment has to say and hear what it is to worship. So we're going to look at two points today out of this passage. And the first is that you are freed from worshiping the dead and dying. You are freed from worshiping the dead and dying. And number two, you are freed to worship the eternal God who loves you. You are freed to worship the eternal God who loves you. That's what we are going to be looking at this. And again, this is going to be the theme as we're looking through the rest of these commandments of freedom that God is bringing us into. So let's take a look at what this means. Here in verse 3, again, it's very short, but God says, you shall have no other gods before me. The word that he uses here, you shall have, this is more than just holding on to something, but it implies a relationship. In fact, as one as scholars point out, the Hebrew construction here is the same construction that we find when God had looked to his people and says, you shall be to me a treasured people. There is to be a relationship between you and me. And here in this point, he is saying, you shall not have a relationship with any other God. You shall not worship anything else. Now, in the word translated here, you shall have no other gods before me, just to clear this up, the way that English can translate it can lend itself to think, well, are we just saying that God is first, and then once you've worshipped him, then you can worship all these other gods? You know, you, you can't do anything worshipping before me, but after me you're allowed to. But no, that's not what he's saying. The word here that, he's trans- that we've translated before me should be translated before my face. In other words... As we have learned from our shorter catechism, this means that there is no place where God is not looking. If we're saying before God's face, God's face is everywhere. That means there is not to be any possession, any relationship, any worship of any other God except the Lord God, Jesus, Yahweh. This is what he means, but you shall have no other gods before me. In essence, what God is controlling is worship. Now, how do we define worship? One of the pet peeves of mine in seminary is when people would use the word worship, they would talk about it in a church setting and would say, first, we're going to have some worship, and then we're going to listen to a sermon, as if the worship ends when the preacher gets up. Maybe that depends on who the preacher is, but it should be that worship is something that is continuing throughout the service. All of this that we are doing is meant to be worship to God. We throw this around, but what does it mean? What does this word worship mean? Well, one of my 
old seminary professors, Dr. Alan Ross, had put it this way, that worship is to bow. Worship is to bow down. It is to show adoration, devotion, submission, and service. And it exalts this object of worship. That's what this is. Adoration, devotion, submission, and service. Something that you love and something that you serve. All of us worship. Not just us here in the church, but everywhere. All humanity worships. Now you may say, now hang on, what about the atheist? What about the person who says that there is no God? Surely you think that they don't worship anything. That's not true. We've been designed to worship. We are going to be devoted, adoring, and submitting and serving something. The atheist, maybe it's his own pursuit in his life. Perhaps it's the pursuit of science or the pursuit of knowledge. Perhaps it's just the pursuit of himself, wanting to do whatever he finds pleasing in that moment. But regardless, we are all going to worship. So the question is, what is it that you're going to worship? I've framed this first point as we are freed from worshiping the dead and the dying because worshiping anything else other than God is both foolish and tragic. In fact, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. Here, this prophet is outlining in an almost sarcastic way what idolatry looks like. Begins in Isaiah 44, starts in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let him declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter scratches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over, 
Over the half he eats meat. He arose, sitting and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am worn. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. Also, I baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself. Or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This is the picture that God draws of false worship. We can see the foolishness of it. What has this man had to do? He's had to plant a tree and the rain had to water it. The soil had to nourish it. He had to wait for it to grow. And then he had to cut it down. And then he was the one that had to get out all these tools to make it into something. And then he took the other half of the wood that he apparently couldn't find any use for for his God and had to burn it so he could have some lunch. And then sticks his block of wood up down and then bows down to it. This is something that still happens in cultures all over the world. People fashioning some sort of God, some sort of physical representation to bow down to. But we in the supposedly civilized West do no better. We might not physically bow down to a block of wood, but we will burn ourselves out to pursue after cotton, green cotton, and the power that it supposedly takes. Anything else that we can worship like this is just a tragedy. In fact, Ross, Dr. Ross, to quote him again, it says, those who make idols depend on God for the raw materials. Anything that we're going to fashion into a God, anything that we're going to pursue in this world is coming from the hand of God. And for some reason, we will ignore the worship of God and instead try to worship something that he's made. Something that we're trying to form. And note what happens to this poor soul. His eyes are shut. His heart is not discerning. He can't even tell he has a lie in his right hand. As one book title very well put it, you are what you worship. You are what you worship. Elizabeth Browning, a poet, had put it this way. How weak the gods of this world are, and weaker yet their worship made me. Anything else that we pursue, we are subject to its whims. There are many of us that have drawn tremendous comfort and trust and devotion to an economy, to money. And oh, how we're seeing what a foolish God that is. A single tweet can change the entire stock market. A change in policymaking can take what was once a very powerful economy and seemingly cut it in half. Trying to rely on these things is nothing. It's a foolish thing. 
It's a tragic thing because those things can't save you. We're beyond what it is that we just experience here in this world. Yes, money and other, any, or really anything that you can put your hope, love, and trust in can and will fail you at some point, even other people. But the tragic thing is, is that this also has a bearing on your eternity. Where you spend all of eternity is dependent on who you worship. And it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is no other name under heaven whereby we will be saved. That is Jesus. Trying to find hope and salvation in any other religion is not going to bring you salvation. That's an unpopular message today in our pluralistic culture where we always want all the options to suit our comfort. We're not going to find it there. There will be no freedom there. Only before God. As Riken put it, it's all or nothing. You're going to put all of your devotion and care and worship to Christ. God will not tolerate split loyalties. No other God before him. Now the reason why I frame this as being freed from this is when we grasp this, that there is a God who loves us, that we are commanded to worship, there is a tremendous freedom there. Can you imagine being delivered from the fear of what happens in the economy? When we trust God fully, we don't have to worry about what goes on here. Do we take wise steps and try to be good stewards of the resources that God has given to us? Of course. But do we make that the driving force of our life? It's going to bring you a whole lot of anxiety. I've been experiencing this a bit myself as we've been, been trying to um, offload an old vehicle of ours and trying to sell it for a certain price. And I've put a lot of identity in my ability to negotiate a good price. And I'm finding that, that I do not possess those skills. And I would notice that my emotions would go up and down based on how much I was being offered for that vehicle. And I realized I was putting a lot of hope and trust in myself and in what amount of money I might be able to bring in. And I was bound to that. What are you bound to? What do you put your hope and trust in? The future? A spouse, a retirement, your kids turning out a certain way, your health being at a certain level, your accounts being at a certain level. What do you trust in? Because what you trust in will demand more and more of you, and it will eventually fail. There's an illustration I've been reading through a book about how to survive in the wilderness. And one of the things that they point to when we get to the section on drinking water is it tells you to never drink any salt water because it won't satisfy your thirst. And instead, you will keep drinking and drinking and drinking from it. The salt will build up in your body until you send your kidneys into failure and you will die if you take this. So they've, the, the, the book went as far as to say, instead of drinking salt water, stick a pebble in your mouth. Do whatever it takes instead of drinking that salt water. If we think that we are above divided loyalties or that other things might lure us, as Riken says, away, oftentimes it can, it's very easy 
because it's small. The first thing that a, a false god will call for is your love and your affections. And as it slowly pulls you in, usually a good thing, it will slowly demand more and more. And once it is able to turn your face away from God and calls for greater devotion to it than it is to God, that's when you have found yourself an idol. That's when you've been falling before a block of wood and holding a lie in your right hand. So how do we avoid this? How do we avoid idolatry? Especially when, as John Calvin put it, the the heart of man is an idol factory. Cranking them out as fast as we can. How do we stop this? That's where we get to point number two. Where you are freed to worship the eternal God who loves you. It's a reminder of the gospel. It's the reason why I read these first three verses. For the people here of Israel, what block of wood did all this for them? What delivered them out of the house of slavery? Their own wisdom? No. Any of the other gods of the Egyptians? No. It's God himself. What has God done to deliver you from your house of slavery, from your sin? He's died for you to make this possible. And it's reminding ourselves of that is the only way we're going to have power to resist the Billions of things that could call our attention and our worship. It's reminding ourselves that God loves us. Your money doesn't love you. Your future doesn't love you. There are times where even you don't love yourself to do what you know you should. We can't trust ourselves. And instead, we worship God. All right, well, what does that look like? What does it look like? We've seen what it looks like to disobey this commandment. Have our love and affection and submission turned to something else. What does it look like here? Johannes Voss put it really well in what worship looks like in obeying this command. He says, this commandment requires a devotion to God, which shall be supreme, total, and all-inclusive. So that our relation to God is the supreme and all-important fact of our lives. If we regard our relation to God as a side issue or a minor detail in our lives, we have not even begun to take the first commandment seriously. He goes on to say that thus there can be nothing in our life separate from our religion. We may not draw a boundary line and mark off any sphere or area of life and say that in that area, our relation to God does not count. Even includes the teaching of chemistry or the interpretation of European history. Nothing is left out of our lives that is not directed towards God. Everything in your life is should be focused on your relationship to God. How does the house that you live in help you worship the Lord? How does the job that you work help you worship God? How does the way that you spend your money, the things that you watch, the things that you read, the things that you talk about, how do those things relate to your relationship to God? Because there is an answer to it. 
Even Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that whether you even eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, even the mundane stuff of your life. How do you live it that way? This is really where we find some of our first applications for this. Spend some time this week interrogating your life. Ask yourself, why am I doing this? What is the point of how I'm living this? And try to be as brutally honest with yourself as possible. And see what you find. And what you may find is that that part of your life has actually not been devoted to God. It's rather been rather thoughtlessly put together. This isn't something necessarily to despair about, but something to rejoice that you've discovered. This way you can be free in that area too. The way that you have been living your life in this way, we can turn that over to God and trust Him with it. This gives a grand purpose to everything that you do in your life. There is no mundaneness in the Christian life. It's all devotion to God. That might change how you do things. If your goal is to just try to get your kids to just behave for 10 seconds so you can just get something done in your house, you might be willing to take whatever methods necessary in order to make that happen. But when your kids have been devoted to where I'm raising my kids for the glory of God, there are some things that those options are off the table. The way that you relate to your spouse If the point is just to try to get them to do what it is that you want to do, and if that's how you're interacting with them and why you're interacting with them, that's prison. Your spouse will disappoint you. But if you relate to your spouse for the glory of God, then whatever it is that they're doing, this is something we can be obedient to God and can find hope in. Now it's not about a power struggle. Now it's about a glorification to God. That'll free up a lot of evenings, won't it? A lot of useless arguments. Bowing before hunks of wood. Or even the way that we approach our internet usage. Why are we scrolling through Facebook? Why are we watching these depressing news articles? What's the point? If you can't do it to the glory of God, that sounds like something you can stop. And what a joy. Because now we can get on to devoting ourselves to someone who actually does love us. Cable news doesn't love you. This is for your joy. That's the point of this. In fact, John Piper had put it this way. He says, we make a God out of whatever we find most joy in. So find your joy in God and be done with idolatry. Focus on him. Look to Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself. Then and only then where will you find joy? Then and only then will you find something you can ground your life on. That's what worship is. Submission and devotion to God. And that's done all through the week. And it's done here too, on Sunday. 
There's something special about being together and worshiping God. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us that we should not neglect the gathering of ourselves together. Because this is to stir one another up to love and good works. Or to be reminded that Jesus has died for our sins. He has died for our foolish and tragic worship of stuff that is false and dying. And has opened up his arms to invite you to worship him. This isn't selfish or prideful. Because he is actually the greatest thing in the universe. He is the only thing that can satisfy your thirst. He is the only thing that can satisfy your hunger. He is the only thing that can bring you lasting joy. That's what we're reminded of every Sunday here. Or at least I hope we are. And this worship that we have here on Sunday carries and defines how we're going to do that through the rest of the week. And by the way, the rest of the way that you live your life during the week, that's going to inform what happens when you come back here. Are you preparing your heart throughout the week to be devoted to God again? So what's our takeaway from this word, this commandment? You have been freed to worship the one who is the only source of joy and hope. Remaining sin in you will mean that this isn't always easy. But remind yourself of the fact of the gospel and worship will follow. That's what I want you to walk away from here remembering. Is there going to be a struggle and a fight? Yes. You are still struggling with sin. And you are still susceptible to other things wanting to call for your attention. Even good things to get out of balance. They want your heart, and you're going to have to fight for it. But it's not a fight to serve a tyrant. It's not a fight to convince yourself to just try to gin it up for God one more week. But this is a fight for your own joy, to find it in God and the gospel. This is what you have been freed to do. This is what will make a difference in all of the rest of your life. And by the way, this commandment, along with all of them, this you is a second person singular. If you don't remember your English classes, this is the difference between you and y'all. To put it into our own context, I can contextualize. When God is giving this command, he's giving this command to you, the individual. This is not saying God's people as a club should do this. This is you, you, me, I shall have no other gods before him. This is a command, and this is a joyous invitation to have no other gods, no one else telling you how to live your life except the Lord who loves you supremely. That's commandment number one. And from that will be the foundation for everything else that follows. This is a God who loves you. This is a God who will give you his joy. Doesn't always mean it will be easy. Doesn't mean he's not going to call you to do really hard things. Doesn't the song, as John Piper put it, that every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. That's not always true. But the joy that is promised to you 
The hope that you have, that is undying. Anything else that you can put that could be temporary distractions, those will die or are dead already. So come lift up your eyes with me, people. Lift up the eyes of your hearts to Jesus. See his love for you. Be reminded of what he's done. And then devote yourself to him. He's a good God. So worship him and him alone. Let's pray. God in heaven, the only true God, I pray that you would help us to be reminded of this wonderful truth. That you are God and we are not. That we find freedom in doing what you've called us to do. You have designed us. You've formed us so that we could worship. So I pray that we would. I pray that the worship would not stop with this last song. That it would carry over even to our eating and drinking, which we're going to do here in just a minute in fellowship with one another. I pray that this would carry on into the rest of the week. And when we encounter this sin, when we don't worship, lead us not to despair. But instead, lift up our eyes once more to see you. May our hearts be transformed and be reminded that you are God, that you love us, and that we have our only hope in you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.